0: Production support for EarthEats comes from Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio. Architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy-positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. And insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive home, auto, business, and life coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the Expected. More at BillReshInsurance.com. From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, this is Earth Eats, and I'm your host, Kate Young.
1: The greatest opportunity for us as chocolate makers to influence the flavor of our chocolate is right here. It's in this roaster.
0: This week on the show, we visit Askinosie Chocolate in Springfield, Missouri, to learn about bean-to-bar chocolate making, and to talk with the owner about what it means to know your farmer in the world of cocoa production. And summer gardens might be winding down, but it's almost time to get your garlic in the ground. I'll walk you through the steps of curing and planting garlic later in the show, so stay with us. Let's check in with Renee Reed for news. Hi, Renee. Hi, Renee.
2: Hello, Kate. I've got just one story today from Chad Bouchard. Recent investigations have underscored grim realities for farm workers facing unsafe conditions now made more deadly by the pandemic. Politico analyzed a sample of counties across the U.S. and found that coronavirus infection rates are disproportionately high in farm communities. Most states are not collecting data on the number of infections among farm workers. As harvest season continues in many states, infection rates in those counties have been rising steadily for several weeks. The country employs 2.5 million farm workers, and the USDA estimates about half are undocumented. Advocates say fear of getting fired or turned over to authorities keeps many workers from taking any time off when they get sick, which worsens infection rates. As Bloomberg reported in July, Migrant workers have filed whistleblower complaints for being fired for seeking treatment for COVID-19 symptoms at hospitals, with some employers reporting their workers to immigration authorities. Lack of testing, protective gear, and scant access to health care create a confluence of factors that increase risk for vulnerable workers. The Food and Environment Reporting Network says that up to 57,000 workers across the food system have tested positive for coronavirus. Those numbers only reflect known cases, and advocates say a lack of testing means real numbers are certainly much higher. The Centers for Disease Control in June issued safety guidelines that included taking workers' temperatures, working at a distance, and grouping workers into cohorts to help contain outbreaks. But the Labor Department declined to make those rules binding, and voluntary use of safety measures has reportedly been weak. A report from John Hopkins University in July found that the rate of infections across the country is highest for Latinos, with 73 cases per 10,000 people, compared to a rate for white people of 23 per 10,000 people. The rate of hospitalizations for Latinos in the U.S. is more than triple that of white people. For Earth Eats News, I'm Renee Reed.
0: Having spent my formative years in Springfield, Missouri. I would not have expected to find there a small chocolate factory producing award-winning, single-origin, craft chocolates with direct-trade cocoa bean sourcing. A lot has changed in this Ozark town of my youth, including the revitalization of Commercial Street. Askinosie Chocolate has been instrumental in that effort. They located their production facility and retail space in the district when they started the company in 2007. Sean Askinosie left a successful career as a defense attorney to pursue a passion for high quality chocolate and to do some good in the world along the way. I had a chance to visit with Sean in Springfield. We started our tour of the chocolate factory and a warehouse behind the main facility.
1: So this is where it's uh, just, you know, A few steps away from the back door of our factory. What you see here are cocoa bean bags from the four origins that we buy them from. So, Philippines, Tanzania, Amazon, and Ecuador. What you see is probably around 25 metric tons of cocoa beans. It smells a little bit vinegary.
0: Yeah, it smells like something fermenting. Yeah,
1: for me, it smells good because I know that it's right. You know, I know that it's been fermented. So all of these beans I've visited before they came here, this room is probably the greatest source of pride for me personally. I just got back from Tanzania a few weeks ago. It was my 44th origin trip since I started the company. And every year I go visit these farms in every origin that we buy from. Not just to lay my eyes and hands on these beans, but to see people that I've developed relationships with now over the years. In Tanzania, we've been buying beans from this village for almost 10 years. Peter Cruz, I've been buying beans from him since 2008 and going there every year in the Philippines, Davao. And then Ecuador, I've been buying beans from Vitaliana, who's on the front of our package, almost 15 years. So I go there to see them. I take nothing for granted when it comes to these cocoa beans. Um, I never took these beans for granted, from the first trip that I took to the last one a few weeks ago in Tanzania. And what I mean by that is I know that quality drift is easy in any supply chain relationship. But we cannot afford quality drift in a little family business with only 17 employees. And so I know that making great chocolate starts with what you're looking at here in these cocoa beans. The other thing is we share profits with the farmers. And so I want to do that in person. um, And we translate our financials into their language. So when Lauren and I were in Tanzania a few weeks ago, our financials were in Swahili. And the farmers are able to understand our profit share calculation by um, looking at the financials. And we go over that with them every year and give them money back on the prior year's sale of cocoa beans. This is a lot of hard work. Uh, I know the farmers, you know, who've harvested um, these beans and who grew these beans. Then to watch them pull up on a semi-truck and use this forklift, not me personally, that would be too dangerous, but to this forklift to unload the beans and to see them in here. I mean, it's, it's a, a real source of pride for me. There's a lot of story and a lot of work and love behind the acquisition of these cocoa beans.
2: I
0: wanted to know what Sean is looking for when he inspects these raw cocoa beans at their origins.
1: Well, the first thing is, there's some beans here um, from the Philippines. And we can just kind of look at them. And what we want to do is just look at the exterior of the bean and just look at its color, look at its shape, look at its size, all of these things have to do with quality specifications in cocoa beans. And they don't need to be perfectly uniform in color. As you can tell, this one is really dark. This one's kind of tan. This one looks like it's got some white stuff on it, which is actually um, oxidized pulp from when these beans were fermented. So what I'm looking for As I break this open, the shell is very thin, and these beans have not been roasted yet, so they're not gonna be a flavor that I'm wanting, but I can tell when I'm at origin, I can tell by looking at the exterior of the beans, not even the interior, just the exterior, are they quality? Will they meet my specification? I can tell by holding the beans in one hand and kind of crunching them up next to my ear by the way they sound if they meet the moisture content specification that we have in our beans. So what we're looking for at the beginning of the whole thing is, can these beans that I'm looking at just meet a minimum threshold of quality specification that we set forth? And then we're going to be tasting them and what they smell like and what they taste like. And so the interior of a bean is called a nib. This is a Trinitario variety. The first little crunch of this, there's fruit on the very first crunch. Now, this is not what it's going to smell and taste like when we make chocolate from these beans. And we make a high cocoa content chocolate out of these. We make a 77%. But I can tell they're good. I can tell they're high quality. If I'm at origin, I'm in the middle of the jungle, and I'm looking at these, I say to myself, after looking at the exterior, looking at the interior, and then this is the other thing we do that I didn't mention, but I open these beans up at origin and I cut down the middle of all of these beans and I'll look at the interior of the bean, I'll look at the color of the interior, and I can tell by how dark it is, to how purple it is, to how brown it is, I'm gonna know whether or not I'm able to detect higher or lower levels of fermentation based on the color of the interior of the bean. And so the reason that's important is because we want there to not be just perfectly uniform fermentation because that's gonna give my chocolate a little more interesting flavor profile. It's not going to be sort of a monotone. It's going to have highs and lows if some of the beans have different characteristics in terms of fermentation. Now another thing that I that I do sometimes I don't do it every time, but I will um, take these beans at origin and find a fire. Sometimes it's just like a campfire or a kitchen fire, and get a little pan and roast them there myself, just in the kitchen of a farmer. Then I can tell, not again, again, not what it's going to taste like, but I can smell the roast. And that's going to give me more indication of taste than if I taste the roasted beans, because we know that taste is 90% smell. So that's just in a nutshell what we're looking at. Mm -hmm.
0: After a short break, we'll head into the factory to learn more about chocolate production. Production support comes from Blooming Foods Co-op Market, providing local residents with locally sourced food since 1976. Owned by over 12,000 residents in Monroe County and beyond. More at bloomingfoods.coop. Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent with Personal Financial Services, assisting businesses and individuals with tax preparation and planning for over 15 years. More at personalfinancialservices.net. And Bill Brown, at Griffey Creek Studio. Architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. I'm Kate Young, this is Earth Eats, and I'm back with Sean Eskinozzi. We're heading into the factory to talk about the details of crafting his award-winning chocolates.
1: Kind of in the back door of the factory, and um, we'll just go into the roasting room. And this is what happens. So we take those beans over there that you saw. We put them in these containers. We've cleaned them. So then um, we put them in the roaster, which is hot. (laughs) So this is... um, a roaster that I bought in Colombia, and the thing about this is it has no thermostatic control so and it never did so it would be like roasting on a campfire and we've won a lot of awards around the world with this roaster because I think really the greatest opportunity for us as chocolate makers to influence the flavor of our chocolate is right here it's in this roaster so if we've got good quality beans that have met our specification then we're going to have our the greatest chance right here to roast whether we're going to roast with a high temperature for a short time or a lower temperature over a longer period of time. That's where we're going to be able to do it. But the thing about this roaster is that, so the beans go in the hopper and there's the temperature gauge, but the only way to control the temperature is by watching the temperature gauge and then determining when to drop the beans into the roaster. And then we watch the temperature gauge go down. You have to absolutely pay attention because at these temperatures and at these times, which sometimes can be really short, I mean, some of these beans will only roast for eight minutes. So you have to be really careful.
0: And are you gonna be wanting to roast all of the beans about the same or do you have different roasts for different, different kinds of flavors that you're looking for in each product that you're making?
1: We have different roasting profiles for every different thing that we're gonna make. We had some Criollo beans in here From the amazon just a really limited supply of them and we made a chocolate bar over the summer with them we had a guest chocolate maker in from washington dc zeke Emanuel. he's a doctor but a chocolate maker on the side and so we were in this room sitting right here trying to figure out how to not screw those beans up that was the big thing they're great beans they're very rare we knew they were what we wanted them to be and the only our main job was to not mess them up in this roaster so we were really careful and that yeah so every every one of them has a different profile they go into the cooling tray and then they go uh, from the cooling tray through this auger system and we crush the beans here Uh, there's a little like roller on top that crushes these beans and then they fall down this chute this is what they look like when they fall down that chute and the shells are off you can smell it yeah and the shells have been essentially vacuumed off we have a cyclone on the roof and it is a kind of a big vacuum and it, it takes those shells and removes and there's some shell, which is fine. The shell goes into this thing right here where that big hose is. Depending on how many we have, we might sell them if a brewer needs them to steep the shells in a recipe that they have, or we have a whole bunch. We'll give them to a local organic farmer and he uses it for both his pigs and also as a compost. Now, the noise that you hear now um, this is called a universal refiner, and this machine is a is a grinder. So it's just like your kitchen grinder at home, except it holds 250 kilograms and it's on its side. You can smell this, too. That's chocolate. Uh, I'll get a spoon. And- oh,
0: <laughs> this is my lucky day.
1: <laughs> so um, what I'm about to do is put... A plastic spoon under a curtain of chocolate inside this machine that is running. If any one of my employees did what I'm about to do I would fire them on the spot. So this is what we call um, our Ecuador bulk. This is what we will sell to a coffee shop near you to make mochas and hot cocos with, or bake with, or make ice cream with.
0: Yes, I got to taste from that curtain of molten chocolate flowing inside that refiner. Oh, it's really nice. What do you put in there?
1: That tub of nibs, so we put those nibs in there, and we put organic sugar in there, and we put cocoa butter in there that we make. Yeah, that's it. This is going to run for a while. This thing is on 24-7.
0: It's unusual for chocolate makers to process their own cocoa butter, even craft chocolate makers. He has a custom-built machine for this process. Once the chocolate leaves the universal refiner, it's held in special staging tanks, then moved into the tempering room for the final stages of molding, cooling, and packaging. It's all very beautiful, to be honest. I personally fell in love with a space-age-looking machine called a panner. It's used to apply an even chocolate coating onto round candies. You can see a photo of it on the website. Next, we went into the retail space to talk about and taste specific bars. I was especially interested to hear about the Zeke Bar.
1: And then this is the bar that I was telling you about with those special criollo beans from the Amazon, Chinchipe, Ecuador. This is the Zeke Bar because of Zeke Emanuel that I was telling you about. We only made 2,300 of these bars. but um,
0: Can you talk about what you're tasting?
1: The Zeke bar is a very complex um, flavor profile. It's not monotone like we were talking about before. It's gonna have a nuttiness to it. It's going to have fudgy coffee flavor. So there's definitely a strong coffee note in this chocolate bar. And what's really cool about this is we didn't put coffee in it. So this means that the roasted cocoa bean is going to bring out flavors that you won't expect. So for example, the Tanzania, for whatever reason, tastes like bread and jam. I don't know why, I mean, I'm not a chemist. It's, it has to do with the organoleptic profile of the fermentation and drying process and the chemical reaction that occurs during roasting. Just when you make toast, you know, when it turns from bread to toast, or when chocolate chip cookie dough turns to cookies, that same chemical reaction is occurring in the roaster. And so that's when all of these flavors are kind of unlocked. So when I was on this farm in the Amazon in May, tasting these beans out of the pod, it doesn't taste like this. You just know it's going to be different.
0: So you don't you don't know what's going to happen.
1: No. No. But here's the thing about this that I think is staggering is that What we've learned, if we can get these beans to pass through this threshold spec that I talked about earlier, then the challenge for us, as I said, on these beans that we just now are tasting that's still in our mouth is to not mess it up. And I would say that's, um, we want to do that for all of these chocolate bars to not mess it up. And this is where the challenge comes in. We've done that. I mean, Vitaliano and we've, I've been buying beans from him for almost 15 years. So the challenge for a chocolate maker is you, you can, anybody can do this once. I can go get you a bag of beans and you can take a little grinder to your basement and hey, I made a chocolate bar. And, but to do that year in, year out, year in, year out, knowing that sometimes the beans are gonna not be as great and then they're gonna be great, it's like wine. Then they're gonna be better and then they're gonna be awesome. And we know that, and we're perfectly willing to accept that.
0: Finally, I asked Sean to talk about the difference between fair trade chocolate and direct trade chocolate.
1: Fair trade is a certification. Direct trade is a practice, as defined by the practitioner. Fair trade is a certification based on the premium that's paid on the per metric ton price of the cocoa bean. And I know, look, I respect the fair trade movement. It is served so many wonderful purposes I, can't, I can only speak to cocoa socially, economically, environmentally. but in my opinion, it has become a victim of its own good marketing And, and what I mean by that is people see the label, they feel a sense of um, trust that that money that they're paying for that bar that the premium they're paying, is going to the farmers. But unfortunately, study after study recently has determined that much of that premium doesn't trickle its way down to the farmer who's struggling to harvest, ferment, and dry these cocoa beans. And so uh, it's also really, I think, more applicable to really large cooperatives that can afford it and can use it as a management tool. It's a management tool, it's a certification process, it's a, a premium, but direct trade is a practice. So Intelligentsia Coffee, were they were really the pioneers of direct trade coffee. They were my teachers. And we define it the way they do, you know, and it has to do with paying a high price, having high quality specs, going to visit the farms, making sure there's not children and slaves working on these farms. Yeah, succinctly, that's what I would say the differences are. And I would say to your listeners, your listeners are thinking, well, gosh, how am I gonna know what to do? I I need to know. Well, we all have now, with the wealth of information available to us in fashion, food, all of these things, we can find out. We need to develop, I think, trust relationships with the people that we buy stuff from. And trust is built over time. And I think trust is, is deeper and more dependable than a certification.
0: Sean Askinosie is the founder and CEO of Askinosie Chocolate in Springfield, Missouri. There's so much we didn't get to. Their collaborations with places like Jenny's Splendid Ice Cream chocolate university and other philanthropic projects launched by Askinosie. You can find out more about all of this on our website and see photos from my tour, eartheats.org. It's harvest season for many summer crops like tomatoes, peppers, eggplant, and okra. But fall is also the time to think about planting garlic It's a bulb after all, so just like tulips or daffodils, fall is the time to get them in the ground. I recorded instructions last summer as I headed out to our shed shed to bring in my cured garlic. This is a good place to cure the garlic because you don't want it like out in full sun where it could get too hot, get burnt, but you want it to have a lot of airflow. You want it to be a dry place. You don't want it to get rained on and we have a shed it is not insulated it does get really hot in here in the summer but it is nice and open and airy and dry garlic looks pretty good you don't want it to mold and you're trying to prevent it from molding throughout the winter when you're storing it in your house you don't want it to mold Uh, i worked on a organic garlic farm for a short period of time in my 20s and that was a really big deal with garlic curing was you wanna make sure you get all those outside papers nice and dry so they're not holding any moisture and then they can protect the garlic and they don't allow it to mold. So I bundle my garlic up into bundles of five bulbs and then I just tie them at the top and I hang them up in my shed in, in these bundles. And that's the whole stock. Like I just pull up the stock, clean off any excess dirt from the outside of the bulb but then I just leave it. I have braided them in the past and they're beautiful and they look really handsome hanging up in the kitchen, but I didn't have time this year to, to spend the time braiding. I just bundled them up and got them in the shed. That was about all I could handle. And I have a total of one, seven, eight bundles of five. It's not a huge garlic crop. Doesn't last us the entire year, but pretty close. Garlic is a really wonderful thing to grow because it's kind of off season. Like you plant the bulbs in the fall. I mean, just think of it like when you would plant tulip bulbs or daffodils or something, (laughs) you're, you're getting it in the ground in the fall. And then you want to cover it up with a nice layer of straw or dry leaves to mulch it and sort of protect it through those really cold months of the winter. And then in the spring, it'll come popping up and it'll grow throughout the spring and then you harvest it in June. And then you've got that bed available for another crop, which you can plant in late June, early July and then have a fall crop. I often put carrots in the bed after the garlic and it works out really nicely or you can plant some fall lettuce or other salad greens. And once I bring it in from the shed, then I need to cut the stalks off, and I also trim off those little roots, give it a little haircut, and it looks really nice when you do that. And then I peel off the outermost papers, revealing that nice white, kind of ivory color garlic skin underneath and at that point it looks just like the garlic that you would purchase in the grocery store i like to do this outside on my front porch where i can make a mess and not worry about it and then when you bring it inside i always just store my garlic in a mesh bag like those kind that onions come in or sometimes lemons And I just like to store it in there and then just hang it in a nice dry place, either in the kitchen or somewhere else in the house. The other very cool thing about growing garlic is that you plant a clove of garlic and you get a bulb. So you're multiplying your yield by like six (laughs) times every year because each bulb has six or eight cloves on it and so it's kind of an amazing crop in that way but that does mean you have to set some aside to make sure that you can plant it for the next year like your seed garlic and i always pick the largest best looking bulbs for that and i just store them in a brown paper bag until the fall when it's time to plant them you've still got time to prepare a garden bed and to get your hands on some garlic to plant it's an easy, satisfying crop, and you'll find lots of recipes for putting it to use at eartheats.org. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening.
2: The Earth Eats team includes Ayoban Binder, Chad Bouchard, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Taylor Killo, Josephine McRobbie, the IU Food Institute, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Ortheats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey.
0: Special thanks this week to Sean Askinosi and everyone at Askinosi Chocolate. Production support comes from insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive home, auto, business, and life coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the Expected. More at billreshinsurance.com. Blooming Foods Co-op Market, providing local residents with locally sourced food since 1976. Owned by over 12,000 residents in Monroe County and beyond. More at BloomingFoods.co-op. And Elizabeth Rue, Enrolled Agent, providing customized financial services for individuals, businesses, and disabled adults, including tax planning, bill paying, and estate services. More at personalfinancialservices.net.